Amen. So welcome to everyone. It's good to see all of you guys here and seeing even some different faces. I know through all the chaos going on, a lot of our lives have been upended, disrupted, but just the ability to come some sense of normalcy and coming to worship of the house of the Lord. And so that'll be it for my own coronavirus talk. So in the name of normalcy, and for those who don't know me, one of the things that I love to do is ask questions. And so today we're going to begin off with a question. And it's from, an 1850s, um, from the 1850s from a poet. And the question goes like this. Is it better to have loved and lost than to have never have loved at all? And so you probably heard it in a different way. Is it better to have had and lost and th- rather than to lo- had that and lost it? And so as we think about that question, normally it's, we think of romance, of relationships, of relationships that have been gone or lost. Or when we think about it in that sense of the whole good old days, where back, if any of us been out of high school for some time, where we were so much more athletic, so much better looking, so much better in shape, all the things that we say in the good old days as we think back upon that time. And often there's that struggle with losing that as we get older, as we go through time and relationships and experiences that we've lost in time. And so as we're looking at that today, we're going to look at what does that look like spiritually? Is it better to have known the Lord, to follow, to pursue, to be a believer and lost? Or is it better to have never had pursued? And so when I say that, Second Peter, he, I mean, for India, in Second Peter, he gives us an example of this. When he speaks about false teachers who are preaching the gospel, who are a part of the, the church visibly. And so in 2 Peter 2.21, he says, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So Peter would tell us it is better for them never to have been a part, to been in the fellowship than to have fell away. And no, I'm not speaking of losing your salvation just to quiet anything in your heart that may wrestle with that. But those who were preaching and teaching were falling along and fell away. So what if we find ourselves more in that in-between where we're not as passionate about the Lord. We love him. We're not falling away, but we're that in-between of our faith is wavering. We're unsure. We feel like we're losing hope. In Isaiah 4, 42, verse 3, it says what the Lord does with those people who are in that time. He says that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so in those times of doubting, in those times where you feel your faith wavering, the Lord says he's not going to stomp that out, but rather he's going to revive, as if fanning of the flames. And so with that word of revive, that's what we're going to be talking about today is revival. And so depending on how you're raised, how old you are, that word revival probably has a bunch of different connotations. I know for me, growing up in a more Pentecostal background, revival was I said a couple days, some preacher's going to come by, he's going to preach this amazing message, everybody's going to turn to the Lord. And so as we think of the different connotations that we have about that word revival, let us, we're going to look at in Psalm 85 of what does the scriptures teach us about revival, and specifically looking at Psalm 85. And so I have three goals today as we're going to go through Psalm 85. First one being, I'm going to show how Psalm 85 helps us to better understand revival, also going to show how we should desire that revival in ourselves, but also corporately in the church. And then lastly, that God desires for us to desire the revival of ourselves and also his people. And so with that being said, let's jump into Psalm 85. So it'll be 
up on the screen, or if you can turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 85. So Psalm 85, starting in verse 1. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his steps his footsteps away. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this ability to continue to gather. We thank you for the blessing of being a part of your body. Lord, that we're able to worship together, to hear the testimony of your people, to sing together to stand firm upon your steadfast love in this time of chaos, Lord, this time of where many hearts are fearing, Lord. Anxiety is building up. And so, Lord, in this time, we ask that you give us the strength and the minds and the hearts to look to you, to know that you give good gifts. And even in the midst of difficulties, we can rely upon your steadfast love because you are unchanging. And what you say you will do, Lord, And we trust that you have made these promises to your people to keep them. And Lord, I pray as we go through this psalm for every single one of us, may you give us a renewed hunger for your word. Hearts to go before you in confession of our own sin and also interceding on the behalf of our brothers, the church, locally, nationally, worldwide, Lord and that our hearts are changed, that we have a renewed sense of holiness, renewed sense of righteousness, first and foremost with you and the lives that you call us to live. And so, Lord, we come before you because we are If it were reliant only upon us, we would surely fail. But we thank you that you care about this so much more than we do. And you desire for to see your people rejoice in you, to love you, to know you, to proclaim you. And so we ask this morning, as we go through this passage, that you may give us the eyes and the hearts to see this clearly. We thank you so much for being such a good God. And we praise you for that this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as we begin in Psalm 85, as far as the context... We don't know exactly what is the scene going on, but some of the commentators believe that it was after the exile. So after the exile, they've moved back into the land, and there's problems even after they've come back into the land. 
And though we don't know the context, this is a psalm that probably could apply to Israelites over and over again, where they fell away, the Lord has restored them, and they find themselves in another time of difficulty. And so we begin that off with the psalmist reflecting back to what the Lord has done, starting in verse 1. He says, Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the, fi- the fortunes of Jacob. So he begins by reflecting on what the Lord has already done. And the first thing he says is that you are favorable to your land. And that just simply means that God looked upon his land, his people, with pleasure, that he delighted in his people. This is them having the favor of the Lord looking upon them. And then he says, you've restored the fortunes of Jacob. And so it's a time when the Lord is restoring their fortunes, and that's their material things. That is their possessions. That is their moral character he's restoring, and also his favor upon them. So the psalmist begins by looking back to a time when the Lord has restored his favor and the fortunes of his people. And so we start off with more of the physical is going on. And then in verse 2, he then speaks of, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. So it's interesting here that after talking about the way that they restored possessions-wise, he then moves to the moral, the heart, their iniquity and their sin. And often we'll see these words of iniquity and sin, and they kind of blur together. But I thought from one of the commentaries I was getting to read from Steve Lawson, he did a really good job of kind of unpacking what is going underneath as we look at that word of iniquity. And so he says this. He said, the term iniquity is translated from the Hebrew word avan, meaning corrupt, twisted, bent, perverse, or crooked. While the first word for sin, transgression, describes sin in view of our relationship to God, and the second word deals with our relationship to God's word, this word focuses upon a person's relationship to himself. All sin is a self-defilement, a self-corrupting, a twisting of one's own character, and a bending of one's own integrity. To the degree that a person sins, he becomes a twisted creature within his own soul. And so in Steve Lawson describing this iniquity as this perversion, this bent, this crookedness that is going on in the heart of God's people. And also this word for forgive, what it means is to lift up, to carry. And so you get this imagery of this burden, this iniquity that they're bearing, that the Lord is lifting this up. And we see that often as you look through the Old Testament, that God will speak about a consequence of their sin is that they will bear their own iniquity. And so it's this imagery of that thing that you're giving yourself over to, it is also going to be your punishment. And so for those who come through our Bible study, and and we talk about this every single time, of how does this point us to Christ? And what's so amazing about this right here, of this bearing, this forgiving, this lifting of this iniquity, is if we think about it from Isaiah. Isaiah 53.5, and it says where it says he was crushed for our iniquities. And so we get this imagery of Christ bearing our iniquities, and it crushing him, the, all of the iniquities, all the perversion of us being laid upon him. We see this here with God lifting up that off of his people. And so the psalmist is reflecting back to a time where the Lord has lifted the iniquities off of his people, that they, know they didn't have to bear, and that he's also covered their sin. And it's simply the atonement of blood having to be sacrificed, and you see that through the Old Testament, with them putting their iniquities, the blood covering their sin. And so we see the forgiveness of the Lord upon his people. So first, their land is restored. They have the fortunes in favor. And then morally, they have been forgiven and uplifted. And the result of this forgiveness, of this atonement, this lifting up of their iniquity is that you withdrew all your wrath. 
you turn from your hot anger. And so it was produces that the wrath of God no longer abided upon them. And as I was looking at this of God's wrath and anger, and I know from my own heart, I, I wrestled with it at first. Because when I saw the words of wrath and anger, my visceral reaction was, it feels so human. Because it felt like when looking at it of words like rage or unstable or God's going to be mad as soon as you mess up. And so I had to wrestle with that with my own heart. I know many people struggle when it comes to the anger and wrath of God. And so one way is a helpful analogy, and you probably heard it in different ways. So the example that I thought would, it made a lot of sense, and it helped me to really wrestle through this. And it was an example of lying. So, for example, if you have a child or you've been around children, and they'll say, ask you whatever it is, so I want to go this way, you'll say, you'll tell them something just to get them to go away, so you'll lie to them, right? So that's, that's lying, it's a sin, it's wrong. But you don't think too much of it, it's only a child. How about to yourself? When you tell yourself that you're going to do something, the many lies we've told ourselves, we still say, eh, it's not really that bad. It's, I have to deal with my own problems. And then what about to your friend or spouse? That offense keeps elevating when it goes against a particular person. So with that friend or that spouse, you recognize, oh, there can be ramifications on this relationship. I can lose this relationship if I lie. So that offense keeps going up with each person. And then how about before a government or a king? As you're standing in court and they're asking you for your testimony and you lie upon that, you could end up in jail or even worse, be put to death. And so in each of those, it was the same offense of lying, right? But with who you lied against, the offense was worsened each time as we kept elevating. So how much more so a perfect and holy and just God? And so the problem when it comes with our own hearts, when we look at the wrath and anger of God, it's not with his wrath nor his anger. The problem is in our hearts, we don't recognize how bad sin really is. We don't realize how perfect God really is. And the mere fact that he ever even bears with us, even a second past one of our sins, is a mercy and a grace from him that we should praise him for. And this is why when you look at Hebrews in 10, chapter 10, verse 31, it says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, is because sin for him is a holy offense against him, and it's not something to be taken lightly. And so when we recognize how holy and perfect and just God is, then we're able to see rightly why he would be angry against sin, why he would have wrath upon sin. And so this is where we begin off with the psalmist reflecting back to when all these things were relieved, when, he re when the fortunes were restored, their sin was forgiven, and God's wrath no longer was abiding upon them. And each of these things are in the past tense, and they're all actions from God. Being you were, you restored, you forgave, you covered, you withdrew, and you turned. And so what the psalmist is doing is reflecting back upon what the Lord has done. And so that's the same thing for us as we think of revival. It begins with us looking back to what God has done, starting with a renewed sense of looking back to his word. And so it comes with going back to the scripture, seeing who is God and how has he revealed himself. Another way that that can look like is looking back through church history, being able to see what the Lord has done over and over again throughout time and praising him as we love to celebrate with the Reformation. It was a reclaiming of scripture of looking back and celebrating what the Lord has done. 
And a third way that we can do some looking back at the deeds of the Lord is through testimonies, through our own personal lives where we can look back at the time and say, man, my relationship with the Lord was so on fire during this time. But progressively as I've got this responsibility or this relationship or this thing, I find myself fading away. Or even the testimony of one another, as we got to hear Jeff's and many people in the congregation of what the Lord has done there and even using the internet. As we get to see so many people from so many different backgrounds come out of that. And so beginning there and looking at this is what the Lord has done in the past. And then that then informs what we're going to see now in verses 4 through 7. So starting off in verse 4, he says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? So after reflecting on what the Lord has done, the psalmist now looks at their situation. And he's in a time of desperation of asking, Lord, restore us again. I saw you do it before. I saw you do it through your people. I have all these examples from your word for your people. And looking around, I've seen what you've done. Can you do it again? And he finds himself, I don't believe these are just rhetorical, but a real wrestling with the Lord. Of that sense of hopelessness of his present situation. The feeling that God has forsaken, that he won't put away his indignation. And that he will be angry toward the generations and on forever. And so the psalmist finds himself in this time of doubt, in this time of struggling and looking at his present, present circumstances and situation and bringing it to conclusions about the Lord. And he's doing something else here. He's really looking at the situation and lamenting over it because he knows, as before, the reason why they were under the ignition was because of their sin. He's lamenting over the sin that has them here in this time. And so then that begs the question for us then. When is the last time that you've lamented over sin? When is the last time you took time to lament over the sin going on in the church? When is the last time you just come before the Lord praying for him to revive his people? That our witness would not be stained. That we wouldn't be falling away. What about with your friends or those who you're close with? When have you ever lamented over their sin? Instead of us talking about people or gossiping or slandering our brother and sister, when have we ever just stopped and said, Lord, please free them from this sin. Please give them the strength to not be bound by this thing I see binding them. When have you just take the time to go before the Lord in that? Or even with those who don't know the Lord or you have the opportunity to share the gospel with? Whenever you lamented over them needing to be revived, them to come to know the Lord. And then lastly, with our own heart, as we can easily get caught up in many different things, many different sins, of taking time to lament over the very sin in our own heart that has our relationship with the Lord waning, that has our faith decreasing, that has us feeling as if God is going to leave me in this situation, I have no hope. When have you taken the time to lament over the sin that is around us corporately, but also individually that puts us in so much dangerous and problematic situations. And I think the reason why we often don't is because we have our own tendency to project onto God of how we feel about things or how things should be or how things should operate or just completely discount him. 
And so as I was thinking about this, of this projection onto God, this struggling with even going before him in prayer, I was thinking about this song from a Christian hip-hop artist named Andy Minio. And so there was this joint album that they had, and it was called um, Man, Man Up. I forgot the name of it. So it's called Man Up, and in this particular song, it's called Repentance. And so the whole album's about being a godly man in this. And then on his verse, I thought it was just so perfect of how often we find in this situation. So I'm going to read them, not going to rap them. I'm going to read the lyrics. <laughs> and so as you listen to these lyrics from him, it's, it's amazing how he can capture in words some things that we normally do. So he says, there I go again. Yeah, I blew it. Everything I don't want to do, I keep doing. Steadily feeling stupid. Instead of making excuses, I just need to face the music. I need you. I lean on my own strength, but it's useless because healing only come by them stripes and them bruises. I chunk deuces and turn towards you, but sometimes I turn right back to it. Why do I abuse all the grace that you've given me? It's like I can't win, man. I still got sin in me. And this is the part I want us to focus on. I struggle just believing you've forgiven me because if I was you, I would have been done finished me. But we're not the same, and I thank God. Your grace is amazing. Look where you went for me. On them wooden beams took responsibility for sin that you never did to call you a friend of me. So in that, I love that verse in his rapping because, as he points, that struggle to believe that God's even going to hear. That struggle to even go before him in prayer because it's like, if it were me, I would have been done with myself. I wouldn't continue on. Why would you even continue on? And we project our own mindsets, our own fickleness, our own faithlessness upon the Lord. And as we're going to see here, and going into this next verse, in verse 7, we're going to see how the psalmist, instead of looking to himself to find this relief, he looks up to the Lord. So in verse 7, he says, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So in the midst of this need for revival, this need for forgiveness, he looks to the Lord. And he points to something in particular of this steadfast love. That's the covenant-keeping love of the Lord has said. And so I thought it was amazing as we're going to look up on the screen from Hebrews 6. As he talks about this covenant that the Lord has made in his ability to keep what he has said, this covenant-keeping love. So up on the screen we're going to see Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. So in Hebrews 6, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I put that up there for this particular reason. As he's struggling, he's praying out to the Lord to, are you going to continue on with your wrath? Is your indignation? And in looking to the steadfast love of the Lord, 
And in, the Hebrew, in that passage in Hebrew, it says there's two unchangeable things. That's that the Lord, first, that he already made that promise to Abraham. But he not only did a promise, he also confirmed it with an oath. The promise honestly should have been more than enough. But as we see that God did it for his people, that more convincingly they would trust in the oath that God has made. And so when we see that of God saying is this oath, this covenant that he has made, this promise that he has made to his people, we can, more so, we can honestly more so see God not existing than him not keeping his word. And that's how amazing it is to trust in his promises when he has said something. And this is what the psalmist looks forward to. He looks to that steadfast love, that covenant-keeping God, that he trusts that, listen, if all else fails, if I rot, if all this may go away, the Lord's word will stand. If he says he will do it, then he will. And that's what he looks to in this time of difficulty, in this troubling season. He looks to the steadfast covenant-keeping word of the Lord. And so then he continues on in verses 8 and 9. He says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And so now we see a transition in the psalmist where he begins to speak solely. So it's either himself or hearing from a priest or one of the prophets. And what's going on is here is he's now listening to the Lord, that the Lord surely will speak peace to his people, that the Lord is going to come through. And that confidence that he has, that the Lord will come through, is what gives him that hope. And as we read scripture, we can sometimes forget that there's time lapsing in between this. That it's not just one step after the next, the Lord, he prays, he hears, and it's answered, and everything is fine. But there's time, it takes years. There's time, it takes waiting. And that's what he's saying is that he will wait upon the Lord. That's what he's waiting for us to hear from the Lord as we read in Lamentations 3. That waiting, that endurance upon the Lord. And so often, why we don't wait, why we don't even pray, is because on one end, we're either not happy enough or we're not sad enough to wait upon the Lord. We're just indifferent. It's just, hey, I'm struggling through this. Let me pray. It didn't work out. I'll figure out some other way. Or I'll just continue on. I can keep getting through it. But my prayer for every single one of us is that our hearts may be so inflamed that we will wait upon the Lord to do that work within our heart, to give us that strength, to see our brothers and sisters not be falling into sin, their faith wavering, to not see his church falling away in different ways that we will wait upon him. And if it takes for the rest of our life, just going before him daily in prayer, going before him because he is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can do the work of changing hearts. And so it is a reliance upon him and recognition that only God can do this. So if I try any other way, it's going to end up in a bad situation or make the situation worse. And so that's what we see here with the psalmist, knowing that the Lord will speak peace to his people. But he also says something for them to do, is that they not turn back to their folly. And so on the screen, we're going to read from um, Proverbs 26, 11. So simply said, so, uh, Proverbs 26, 11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And so here in the Proverbs, and then Peter cites this also, of this returning back to our problems, returning back to our sin, returning back to our folly. 
And the psalmist tells us that we should not do that. Once the Lord has forgiven us, he's changed us, and he's brought us into the sense of recognition of who he is, living before him, that we're not to turn back. And it's that warning for us, it's that encouragement for us not to go back to that very thing that had you so entrapped. And that's another difficulty for us because we can romanticize the past. Although it really wasn't that bad, or the relationship really, eh, it had some issues, but I enjoyed this part of it. And we can trick our own selves and turn back to that folly, but the Lord tells us, do not go back. Do not return back to that thing that has enslaved you, that folly, that ignorance. And so that's what he's telling us to do, and that surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That his glory may dwell in our land. And we see a second time the land comes up, and we're going to see it a third time in verse 12. First, starting off looking back to when they restored. Looking back to when the Lord is going to come and restore his land again in verse 9. And we're going to look at verse 12 of the land yielding its increase. And so what the psalmist is desiring is for the Lord to be with his people. That they may see his favor upon his people. That they see, he sees the Lord working amongst his people. That the Lord's glory may be known. That he may be praised amongst his people. This is what he's desiring for the Israelites as they're in this time of rebellion. And so now let's continue on at the last section after we've got to see first with him reflecting, then him praying in the moment, and now looking forward to what the Lord is going to do in verses 10 through 13. So verse 10 starts off, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. So here we begin to see some poetic language of what he's looking forward to when the Lord will restore. So his confidence that the Lord is going to do this, and it has it in poetic language. So of steadfast love, the covenant-keeping love of the Lord, of faithfulness, that dependable, true, trustworthy, of righteousness, being fair, accurate, just, and justice, and the peace, that wholeness, the complete, the shalom. And so the psalmist uses of describing God, and these are God looking favorable upon his people. And often I've heard of people when they struggle with that of how can God be merciful and just at the same time? As we see these attributes meeting, and it's not as saying they're in conflict with one another, but that they're in harmony. We find harmonious in the character of God. And I thought of there couldn't be any better example to see where we see the attributes of God coming together perfectly in harmony, and it's at the cross. Because when we see the cross, we see love, we see peace, we see patience, we see holiness, we see sovereignty, providence, goodness, wrath, justice, knowledge, mercy, wisdom, steadfast love, righteousness, faithfulness, and grace all meet at the cross. And so we see the harmony of God's character, that there is no division or fighting against or this attribute overriding, but they're in harmony when we see the character of God. And so the next time we struggle with that, of how these two things can mix, of how we can see this harmonious relationship of these characters of God, let us look to the cross where we see his mercy and justice all at the same time. That's a beautiful picture for us of the character and nature of our God. And then he continues on in verse 12. He says, yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. And so he's looking forward to when their land will be restored, that their crops will spring, that this tumultuous time that they're going to will fade away, that the Lord will restore and bless his land again. 
And then also there in verse 12 where he says, yes, the Lord will give what is good. And that's so important for us. This is crucial for us to believe, to profess and remind ourselves of this fact right here, that the Lord will give what is good. It's because we can doubt the Lord. We can doubt that it's not having, happening fast enough. We're going before him and saying we're struggling or this issue or whatever it may be. We can doubt who he is. And so in this, I thought about my daughter. Um, so if you guys know Eden, she's a little bit more quiet when she's around people. But when we're home, she gets very excited and runs all over the place. So one of the things that she loves is she has these two little cartoons, Plim Plim and Daniel. She loves to watch them. So sometimes I think she watches them too much. And so she'll come to me and say, Daddy, I really want to watch this. She'll ask me for one of the shows. And then in that moment, I know she doesn't need this right now because it's been a little bit too much for her. So I need to turn her attention in another direction. So I'll tell her, Eden, go, go, get, a, go get a book. So more times than not, she'll go get the book, and she'll bring it back, and we'll sit there and read it together. And so I use that example of with my daughter at that moment. She really wants to watch that TV show. But I know at this time, even though the TV show is not bad within itself, but at this time it's not good for her. And so I turn her attention towards something else, and I do it with her. And often the Lord does that for us, that we go to him with whatever that situation is, that career, that job, that spouse, that relationship. We say, Lord, I need this now. I need this right now. I need this right now. And often he may say, it's not right now. And what we desire from it is either, Lord, change us or change the situation. Lord, if you're not going to give this to me now, change me so I may be able to endure, that I may be able to still praise you and rejoice, even if I don't get that thing, even if it is a good thing, but just not then. And so we put our trust and our faith in him because he will give what is good. And so we trust in his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding to know if it is not now, then it is not good for us to have it at this point. And so that is crucial for us to believe in this time of waiting and upon the Lord to revive us, to give us that strength, to give us whatever that thing is that we're struggling with, to help us to get through it. And so as we finish off in verse 13, it says that righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And so we see here righteousness is personified as a herald, going before proclaiming the way of the Lord. And it's saying that it will make his footsteps away. And in that same way that the Lord walks, in the same way that the Lord goes, we are to follow in that same direction. And so as we think about revival, starting off with the remembrance, going to the word, looking at the history of his people, looking at the testimony of his people, and then through that, then going before him in confession of our sins, the sins of us as a body, of us collectively as a church, and then also interceding for your brother and sister, going before the Lord, asking the Lord to strengthen them, to forgive them, to give them the heart of repentance. And then that repentance doesn't just end there and just stopping, but it turns into footsteps of righteousness, following after the Lord, a renewed devotion towards holiness, a renewed devotion towards righteousness, a desire to obey and love and serve God. And so as we think about revival, like I started off with my own experience of thinking of the dramatic, the exaggerated, the emotional responses. And as we see here that that's not what it's about. That yes, you can have these moments, but it's more about the sustaining work 
of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that revival is not just a religious experience or a time of great emotion, but rather it is a time of intensification of the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray.